It's not what's best for you, the superintendent, or what's best for you, the physics teacher. What's best for the kids in the building? And IBB facilitates and fosters that. This is Jennifer Grandberry, and you're listening to Voices from the Field, insights from educators who are positively impacting students' learning in the classroom. In this episode, Joe Anderson, co-executive director for the Consortium for Educational Change, speaks with Nick Wall, a champion in the education arena, having served public schools for more than 30 years in roles as teacher, coach, athletic director, building principal, assistant superintendent, and superintendent of schools. Joe and Nick talk about building a relationship of trust through interest-based bargaining. I thought maybe in some ways to really understand interest-based, you have to understand what preceded it, at least in Illinois, and that's, I think, the context for both of us where we began to get involved in it. And uh, I remember um, getting into the IEA as a staff person, a field staff person in, in really early 70s, 72. And at that point, the, uh, the union was in the process of becoming a union. Actually, we had thrown out the administrators and the principals and whatever. And uh, it was really war, okay? Because school boards and uh, administrators uh, were not very interested in their teachers becoming a union and collective bargaining. And so we were engaged in a battle throughout the 70s to really get uh, collective bargaining. And at every point, there was huge resistance, at least in most places. There were one or two exceptions, but most places a fairly significant resistance. And so what then became bargaining was very much imported by the management attorneys in particular from the private sector, okay? And it came from the industrial sector, in particular uh, the kind of labor management relationships that went on in auto and coal and steel. Um, And there was a sense that there was a very narrow scope of negotiations. It was around bread and butter and uh, protection, that kind of thing. And everything else was management rights. And so that was the battle um, to get to the table and, and then actually be able to talk about stuff that mattered. I remember a lot of the, the leaders of the union in the early 70s, myself included, saw the, the opportunity to professionalize teaching and have a collective voice and bargaining being a vehicle for that as really the agenda um, to strengthen the profession and ultimately what we did with kids and be better at it. But the resistance coming out of that private sector paradigm uh, was very confining and limiting. And so that was kind of the battle of the 70s into the 80s. By 83, the IEA, and working with others, IFT and others, had secured collective bargaining as a a statute, which went into effect in, in 84. And really what had happened by that point is, although there was still that resistance, there was a kind of a... Uh, a political acceptance, if you will, that the teachers and their unions were not going to go away. In fact, they were stronger than ever, and Mm -hmm. uh, we'd better learn how to deal with that, okay? But it still was a fairly adversarial environment. Actually, when I I left IEA at the end of the 70s to do some uh, community organizing, came back in 1980, and I was amazed by, in some ways, the armed camp kind of place 
schools had become. It was one thing, I'm, you know, you could have an action as a community group of, with Mayor Jane Byrne of Chicago, and you could be respectful but tough on each other. The next day you went your separate ways, mm -hmm. whereas in the schools you'd have these tough battles around bargaining, sometimes even strikes, and the next day you were living together still, day in and day out. So there weren't really what you'd call collegial or even friendly relationships between often building administrators and teachers or district administrators or whatever. That's certainly not an environment for doing good quality teaching and learning. So in the mid-80s, we had this opportunity in Illinois when this fellow from out of state, Irving Goldhaber, came in and offered this process called win-win um, to try something new. And we were first defensive, but um, we tried it. And frankly, our experience was that uh, the results were, if anything, on the bread and butter a little bit better, certainly not worse. But what was markedly improved were the communications, the openness to dialogue, really, and begin to form something of a relationship with um, the other side and ultimately some trust. Actually, it was that foundation that provided the context to organize the Consortium for Educational Change in 1987 because teacher leaders and superintendents and school board members said, hey, look, this process of what we then called it win-win actually is, is uh, improving things in a way that we'd like to continue it, not wait till bargaining rolls around again in two, three, whatever years. Right. And so that was the impetus to organize this vehicle to help those parties continue to build and work on relationships so that it can improve the systems and ultimately teaching and learning. But with interest-based, um, this outside consultant didn't always play well with some of our, our different districts and boards. There was a, a board in Evanston Township High School that uh, really his, his approach was a little too folksy or family therapy kind of language, and there were a number of the attorneys. They wanted something a little more rigorous, intellectually, I think. And so uh, we offered, myself and the then director of the executive director of the Illinois Association of School Administrators, John Wargo, to facilitate a similar process. Well, we, we did, and it went as well. Um, and frankly, from that point on, we built teams of IEA staff people and administrators or sometimes school board attorneys uh, who facilitated the process. And over time, we very quickly, in fact, probably by the late 80s, came into contact with the getting to yes work out of Harvard Negotiations Project, which gave us the theoretical intellectual framework to understand what it is we wanted to do and how to do it. And so if you really want to define interest-based bargaining, in my view, I think it's best practice around uh, problem solving and decision making. Because uh, when you come into any bargaining situation, you're trying to make decisions jointly. <laughs> right. And if you have a frame that understands what's best practice in terms of problem solving, um, then that's what you want to do. And the major four principles that the Getting to Yes book by uh, Fisher and Uri lay out really captured the contrast with the traditional approach. Uh, first and foremost, uh, you want to not talk about positions, but interests. And we can get into it. I'd love your thoughts on how we describe those, those different notions. Um, but the traditional bargaining that we'd been engaged in, each party would spend months sometimes preparing proposals in isolation from one another. They'd come to the table the first time, and the major thing those proposals they 
threw on the table did was to absolutely alienate the other side because their notion of what the problem was and the solution from the teacher's point of view was the absolute of ideal from the administrator's point of view and vice versa. And so it set up that polarization and conflict. And that gets into the, the second principle, which is to separate the people from the problem. Well, the very process in the traditional adversarial mode did the exact opposite. It immediately pitted people. In fact, they each nominated their gladiators, sometimes the board attorney or the unit right. director or the field service person for the union, and they just duke it out for the others as they bystanded and uh, took it in. So separating the people from the problem was very different and opening up the participation in the process. Then the notion of um, objective standards, how to begin to frame uh, some criteria that we might look at to help analyze the problem. Uh, and then the fourth principle was the, the whole process of generating options, okay? In the traditional process, you had my position and your position, and uh, locked horns in a very personal kind of um, adversarial kind of way that generated far more heat than light, and ultimately hurt the relationships and didn't get the very good solutions or very minimally satisfactory solutions. My experience over the years was people would leave the traditional process, both sides feeling not very good about the outcome, kind of grimacing. And so the option of developing options and expanding the point of view of began to create the opportunity to see a lot of good and different ways to, anyway, those principles were in such contrast to the traditional adversarial approach. Truth is, when teachers, administrators, and school board members began to experience that kind of process, they said, this makes sense. Absolutely. Because <laughs> nobody was really comfortable, or very few people were comfortable with the old process, which was just knocking heads. Anyway, that's a very long introduction to understanding interest-based. Uh, I think it's important to understand it in terms of what it isn't. And, uh, but, but you add your own thoughts and experience there and let's well, build on that. I would echo that, Joe, and as a, as a practitioner, um, 16 years as a superintendent in, uh, you know, 11 in Illinois and 5 in Indiana, it was really interesting as I introduced the concept of collaboration in the districts that I inherited as a superintendent. Um, all three districts were very much line and staff, top down, very positional, traditional bargaining and decades of labor management, distrust, unrest. And so when I walked in and sat down with um, the union presidents of all three and started talking with them about opportunities for us to have conversation and collaborate, building a relationship of trust, and them actually seeing that this could be part of how we do business, um, really started to get some traction. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, and I agree, this is not just about interest-based bargaining, you know, every three years or every four years we've got to get this process. It's about making it part of the system. And so when I would start to talk with the, the union leaders when I started in the district, they, they were very skeptical. Um, who is this guy and should we trust him? One of the things in a top-down line and staff model that I inherited uh, were these committee structures that used to be in place before I came about program evaluation, curriculum evaluation, textbook adoption, you name it. Um, the committees were handpicked by administration. Uh, 
the decisions were predestined before they even met. And the union knew it. The, the teacher right. le leaders knew it. So one of the first thing I, I did before we got into bargaining and, and talking about contract was change that structure. And the teachers met with the union. We agreed on who would be on the committees. And then we let the committees actually do the work. And once the, everyone saw that this was actually meaningful, even the administrators, building principals, assistant principals, teacher leaders, um, it started to build some traction around trust and relationship building. And then I would introduce the concept of interest-based problem solving, interest-based bargaining. But again, I said to them, this is just not just about you know, salary and wages and working conditions. Let's make this how we do business. Um, and, it, and it worked. Now, one of the most amazing things I saw in, um, was particularly at Hinsdale when I, when I came in there. When we just started doing interest-based bargaining, and Lynn Adler was very instrumental in coming in to build that trust with the union and build that trust with, uh, and the process and the teaching. Lynn's an Illinois Education Association staff person. Yes. Has great expertise in this area. Just tremendous teacher and tremendous um, listener in, in the process. And I think that's what, in my experience with traditional positional bargaining, Listening was really not part of the process, in, in my observation. It was about, here's the position, go caucus, come back in, here's the position. There was no opportunity to listen. Lynn did a great job training everyone. But in Hinsdale, the first part of IBB is allowing the story to be told. Each side tells their story without judgment, without interruption, and the other side would listen. There was so much cleansing that went on at Hinsdale during that first bargaining session to allow the union representatives to just tell their story, their perspective. Right. And for then the board side and administrative representative to listen to the story. And then vice versa. There were different perspectives from the administrative side. Uh, but frankly, um, you know, as I've told you before, I walked in Hinsdale. July 1st, 2005, there were three active grievances on my desk that were going to expire at the end of the week. So the first thing I did was call Jim Crandall up, the union president, and said, let's go have a cup of coffee. And what I found out real quickly was there was merit to those grievances. And a grievance is something where the contract has been violated. And they were, and we fixed it. So early on, it said to me, there's a reason why there is this labor management strife. And there's a reason why the union president was looking very carefully at everything that went on. And the second premise that I got in place early on as a superintendent to my administrative team, which goes hand in glove with IBB, is let's do things with teachers, not to them. Right. So that really sets a stage for collaboration. So I mean, I really echo, um, and I see, I appreciate the history in Illinois, how it came to be. Um, but I think it's something that needs ongoing training and ongoing practice and ongoing um, cultivation of relationships um, to continue to build that trust. Because once you lose that process, and I know the districts that, um, you know, after I left, they do not, sadly, don't use IBB anymore. You know, there's so many insights in what you've just shared, Nick. I, I, can I pick up on a few themes? Um, Please do. You're, you're, what you just said resonates with our experience over the years, I think, with interest-based. If a district just used interest-based 
uh, and did it two, three, four times in a row, but did nothing with it in between. They tended by the third or fourth time, in my experience, say, well, are we sure, each side would say this to itself, are we sure we're getting as much as we could? Maybe we should be banging mm -hmm. more and getting, and they'd get pressure from their, their troops, sure. their constituents, to do return to battling because there were some voices who were saying, man, we're not getting as much as we could. If it wasn't somehow beginning to be institutionalized as a way of doing business, just what you were describing, right. it, it wouldn't last. Okay, And that's the whole purpose and role of the consortium for educational change is to provide that external support for people to build that internal capacity over time to do this work this way all the time. I mean, it's about culture change. As you said, you walked into a, a culture which was pervasively adversarial. <laughs> that taints every system in place. You know, as, as Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast every day of the week. Right. Okay? And so you've got to begin by transforming that culture. I love it what you said about your first steps. Because in a high distrust environment, somebody's got to break out of that cycle that vicious downward cycle. And that's what you did. You, you invited Jim Crandall, the union president, to have coffee, okay? Yeah. And then you began changing their experience with these ongoing committees, which had been so top-down and predetermined as to outcome. And they said, hmm, maybe this guy really means it. Right. right? The, the most powerful story, I think, in our more recent history is what Anwar Sadat, then the president of Egypt did by going to Tel Aviv and addressing the Knesset. Um, you know, he broke through the tit-for-tat, whatever. So I think those first steps, I mean, people often ask, how do, you, how do you break through this adversarial culture? Some leader, and it can be the union leader, can be the superintendent, can sometimes be a board member, I've seen that happen too, uh, will just say, well, could we try something different? And I, I think that's what you did because it's the first step in opening up trust and relationship building. Then interest base helps accelerate that. And then, of course, you have to follow it up with something. Um, by the way, one of the, th the outcomes that I saw from our point of view, that at this point the union's <coughs> point of view, but I think it was uh, to the advantage of management as well, it did three things. First off, Problem solving is in a different tone or key. It was right. collaboration versus adversarial. But it blew open scope of bargaining so that all the kinds of things that most importantly had to do with teaching and learning could become part of the problem solving conversation. And in fact, it set up continuous problem solving. It wasn't just Absolutely. episodic every two, three years or through very rigid structures. It was continuous, informal problem solving in a new key around everything that mattered to everybody in the system and ultimately, most importantly, to the, to the students. I think what you said also about listening and the way that we've tried to frame this process on the front end of helping people listen to each other's story or perspective on what the situation is so they begin like the blind man and the elephant to piece together the, the varieties of touch on this big, huge animal that is our system so that they come up with a more holistic vision of what that step in the beginning of really dialogue, building meaning together before they try to do any kind of problem solving sets the context to just for a much deeper and, and broader conversation. And ultimately for me, a lot of this gets to 
for the teachers, I think it's an opportunity to become what they aren't in many places now, which is a true profession. Obviously, we have very dedicated professionals, individual teachers who have the highest of moral and professional standards, but they're not engaged collectively in their work of teaching and learning. And this is an opportunity to begin to build a system that builds teachers in their collective efficacy. Uh, John Hattie, Visible Learning, says the most powerful driver of improvement is collective efficacy. Uh, Hargraves and uh, a co-author, I think his name is Collins, may not be, have a, a large, a long paper entitled Collective Professionalism. And uh, Fullen and, and Hargraves together in their book Professional Capital, all moving in this direction of building that kind of collective capacity with the support of administration and community to really do the work hard work of teaching and learning, and ultimately the hard work of engaging students actively in their own learning. We can't get to that end point if we don't begin to transform culture, relationships, systems, and help people on all sides grow a different story around what we mean by the profession. And I think interest-based and our work with interest-based and CEC over the years has helped position that kind of culture shift system building and ultimately profession transformational work to get at a different kind of teaching and learning. Well, I agree, and, and I think you hit on a number of things that I want to just kind of extend. When you, get, when you really get a chance to, to, to allow both sides to listen to each other and establish there's a shared interest, and that shared interest is the students and the success of the students, you know, academically, social, emotionally, that becomes, you know, when I would make decisions with, the, with the, my leadership team and with the teacher leaders, when you cut through all the noise, so to speak, and said, okay, what's best for kids? You've, all, you've changed the whole construct of the conversation. Yeah. It's not what's best for you, the superintendent, or what's best for you, the you know, AP um, physics teacher. What's best for the kids yeah. in the building? And that IBB facilitates and fosters that. Um, the other thing I, I saw uh, significantly um, beneficial of IBB, and, and I was trained through CEC as an interest-based bargainer and facilitator. I sat in the room with uh, Uniserve directors and was, I got trained with them. Right. Right. And talk about a, a, a great opportunity to just break down barriers and be a learner together. We were just, we were all learning. And um, CEC was tremendous to me as an administrator to learn this and now advocate for it. And the positional, I, I saw there, um, you'd literally go in your separate rooms, get your proposals, you come in, and there was, by design, it was like, okay, what's behind the curtain? The other big thing that I see where IBB can take that cur takes the curtain away, yes. you're all in the room. You're hearing the same stories. And then the other big thing that can be such a roadblock to districts is uh, we call it the data dump. All the data comes in the room. You know, finances, uh, health insurance, everything's in the room. Teachers are in the room. Administrators are in the room. You know, board representatives, if, if, if they were part of the team. Everybody saw the same thing. Everybody heard the same questions. The curtain was ripped off, and there was no question on how much money there was. Yep. Was there a shared interest in having a fund balance that maintained the district's 
bond rating? Was there a shared interest in um, health insurance and how could we change the plan design to make sure it met the needs of all members? That's teachers and administrators all in the same health insurance plan. But it just, it got a peek behind the curtain. And when you do, you know, Oz is not that scary anymore because it is same information, same people in the room. No one can walk out and go, well, they were in the other room. They didn't tell us that. No, we're in the same room. It's one room right. collectively bargaining the shared interest of improving the district and improving the, the teaching and learning for those kids. Yeah. You know, that, again, a number of key ideas I think you just shared that I'd like to pick up on. The, the shared interests around students. One of the things I, I learned in the process was that there are three kinds of interests that people have. Some are conflicting. That is, they're actually zero sum, okay? A dollar in my pocket is a dollar out of your pocket, okay? Whether it be a taxpayer pocket or a teacher pocket. That's a zero sum. There are obviously also shared interests around what's good for our students. And by far and away, most of the interests as we began to identify them are shared. Mm -hmm. But then there are also a set of interests which were very key to understand, which were complementary which weren't in conflict, they weren't exactly the same. It's like a, a, a buyer and seller of a home. Somebody has an interest in selling. It takes a complementary interest from somebody to buy. Those aren't in conflict, those are complementary. And a lot of those conflicting interests could often be transformed into what you might, from conflicting to complementary. And ultimately, they begin to understand that they're all in a larger contract of, as you suggested, shared interests, especially around, around students. Um, I think the, the joint training, um, first off, we would, in the process in CEC, we train people together in the districts, right. okay? The administrators and the teacher leaders and the school board members and the classified staff, too, if they're going to be a part of the process, they would all be trained together. So it's not different stuff for different folks. And, right. And that was very important to create that shared context and shared knowledge base from the start. What you said about the, the knowledge dump, the data dump, um, it was always amazing to me that the, in the adversarial structure, there would be fundamental disagreement around facts, okay? Absolutely. Options and uh, possibilities, <coughs> sure, have disagreements around those, but less the facts are the facts. And this process is designed to demystify the facts, to actually jointly create the information base off of which people can make th thoughtful decisions. And if you just from that point alone, if you just thought about this, this is common sense. Why would you have a process that distorts the facts on either side rather than build a common understanding of what is so that you can then talk about what should be the options for the, for the future? Um, one of the things that, that also you talked about tearing away the curtain, I think that's a lovely metaphor for what we're trying to do. But as a facilitator in the process, near the end stages, we would often, um, as jointly facilitators, a management person and, and a union person would mm -hmm. go into each caucus. It was like going into two different worlds, okay? I mean, the way Absolutely. the one world saw the situation was totally different from the other world. And you realize that you know there was profound communication issues. Okay, they yes. just had to go in some ways back to the storytelling to understand the collective whole from a, a more comprehensive point of view. 
Um, one of the things, and then I'd love to talk more about how we in CEC try to support this process, the value of the third party in CEC coming into train is so, I think, misunderstood. And I think at root of this is when you commit to collaboration, and IBB is that, and CEC can come in and facilitate the training, as you said, everyone in the room, teachers, classified, administration, leadership, you're getting trained together. So all of a sudden you've, quote, leveled the play playing field. It's not hierarchy anymore. It's not a top-down. You hear the same thing, you're getting the same training. But the other thing you're doing is you're giving, CEC can come in and give all sides permission to let go of some of the control that they have. I think traditional positional is a very control-driven model. And the training that I received from CEC is such, is, is outstanding, and I absolutely am a champion for it. It takes away the control mechanism, and it's giving everyone permission to learn the same methodology together. It lets you see and humanize um, teacher to administrator, classified to administrator, um, because this is really a, re a true relationship building um, model. And, and the thing that I always uh, felt as a superintendent for 16 years, um, and this was just from upbringing, by position, I was no more important than any other employee in the district. I had a different role, but I wasn't any more important. Truly marching this out with IBB and creating those relationships at the table and then continuing them as part of the culture, uh, it can be done. But to your point earlier, I wanted, to, I wanted to say, if you just do it for bargaining, it will not have the success in shifting that culture to a real collaborative culture. Um, and ongoing training, I think, is vital because, as we know, the dynamic of a board shifts every two years. That's not just factual, that's not a judgment. Um, teacher leaders change, administrators change. The ongoing training, just to kind of do the micro-learning sessions with CEC, I think are vital because, again, it creates a third party coming and go, okay, let's re-touch let's re these components. Let's work on storytelling. Let's work on straw design. Let's work on shared interest and it gives everyone that refresher. So I really think that's an important component that I know CEC does extremely well. I, you know, I, I love what that you're saying. The role of the CEC uh, facilitators here is important to tease out. Um, in the traditional process, uh, the role of the outside parties is as advocates for their respective uh, employer, if you will, uh, whether it be the union or the management attorney or whatever. The role of the facilitators in this process, they're advocates, okay? They're not neutrals. I always dislike the word neutrals, okay? Mm -hmm. Because it means you don't stand for anything. Right. I think our facilitators in CEC absolutely stand for a lot. They're advocates for the relationship between the parties, that these different entities need to have a powerful collaborative ethic and culture to build together the kinds of systems that are going to improve things for kids, yes. ultimately for teachers and for kids. So they are advocates uh, for the relationship. 
I love what you say about letting go of control. Um, people don't have to be so guarded. In mm -hmm. fact, part of the process is to get people to relax so that they can in some ways tell the truth to one another. Right. Their respective truth, but begin to hear it rather than through these filtered communications that really distort rather than help. Um, so I think that that, that opportunity to really um, let go of their guardedness and the outside facilitators help with that. And, and I, I also love what you said about leveling the playing field, that uh, there's no one entity that's in charge, whether right. it be the union leader, the school board president, or the superintendent, or whatever. Um, by the way, I think it's also important to have principles in this process. Uh, one of the mistakes we've sometimes made in facilitating the process is middle management hasn't had a voice at the table. And I think that's been really critical, because it's a mistake to think that uh, central office necessarily speaks for building level administrators, or certainly the teachers won't speak for building. They, they have a distinct perspective and story to tell, and right. their voice needs to be at the table. Um, I think the, the, the importance of ongoing long-term support, we see our, our, our vision in CEC is, as a capacity-building external support system to build the capacity internally. If, in fact, you can help people begin to break from an adversarial to a collaborative culture and then begin to transform that culture so that it becomes pervasively collaborative, and you build into that the ongoing training and support so that everybody in getting into key roles understands that they have a, they've committed and bought into a certain way of doing business, what one superintendent I know calls table stakes. Everybody has agreed that these are the table stakes. Mm -hmm. We all have to ante up uh, to the collaborative training and skill building that it's going to take to do this work. Um, so over time, hopefully the system, if we, we support it well, and it's open to that support, can begin to develop internally the capacity to do this work. And we've seen that in some of the systems we've right. had long-term partnerships with. And that's our preferred way of working with districts is moving from not just a vendor around this, whether it be IBB or whatever, but to a partner in a long-term journey of uh, system transformation to ultimately improve teaching and learning. If you, if you had to capture our mission in CEC in a, in a phrase, it's to help adults work well together so that they can mm -hmm. improve systems so that they can empower students through deep learning. Absolutely. That's it. That's in a, in a nutshell. Um, and uh, that's what we've done. I love what you and colleagues like Kathy Tordman and others across the country have now done for us in CEC, which is to build a cadre of close to 25 facilitators uh, mm -hmm. spread across the country who have been certified through a rigorous training regimen and then demonstrated practice so that they're certified by CEC and we won't give any district anybody else but our certified facilitators to then support this process, whether it's the bargaining process, the training pre-bargaining, the ongoing training and facilitation during bargaining, or after bargaining, continuing support around interest-based problem solving as a system. Uh, I love that we have these dedicated, very skilled people across the country. Uh, we've just recently, by the way, helped in Portland, Oregon with their bargaining and also in Corona, Norco, California. So we're beginning to have a national footprint. We have facilitators on both coasts that can do this kind of work. And in addition, uh, through the work of yourself and your colleagues under Kathy Tordon's leadership, we've built a significant repository of resources, yes. training designs, 
examples, modules, uh, etc. A large body of support, conceptual knowledge center support for our facilitators to do this work. So I think there's a, a crying need for this work, and I think we're about as well positioned as we could be in CEC. We want to continue to get better at it, but uh, really help systems take their work to the next level, ultimately, as you said, for our shared interest in improving teaching and learning for, for our students. I remembered the point I wanted to say earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the constant questions over the years I've gotten from people around interest base has been, well, it's all well and good about some of the non-economic issues, but this, does this really work around money, okay? Isn't money where you get back to the traditional and you mm -hmm. kind of haggle it to a conclusion? And I have to say, often that's been true because the parties have been unwilling to submit, to let go control, as you put it, to submit yep. to the discipline of the process. But actually, in my experience, this process is most effective when you begin to deal with economic issues. For example, just beginning to define some of the criteria or objective standards, as the getting to yes folks talk about it, mm -hmm. um, you know, you begin to identify some standards like cost of living. Well, you can, that's a standard you can measure. It's right. fairly precise. Uh, the district's financial position, as you said, if mm -hmm. you have understanding of the facts, you know what is affordable, what isn't. Right. You can certainly look at comparisons. You know, who are you as a district competing with for attracting teachers? Absolutely. And, and you, you know what that is. Um, actually, one of my very first experiences when we began to introduce that notion of standards and they could begin to define their group of comparison districts, and it was high schools, and when they placed themselves where they were currently, and then when it became clear where they thought they ought to be, the truth was that of the 10 high schools they compared themselves to, they wanted to be somewhere between the fourth and sixth. Yeah. And they were very close to that. And so they were able then to compromise and close the deal, but only because they'd given themselves the space to look at the facts, begin to identify some standards, and then most powerfully try out options, not push positions, right. but try out options. Nobody owned it, but let's say, well, what about this? What if we did X percent increase? Mm -hmm. How would that square with these different standards? Just gave people a very sophisticated and much more thoughtful way of coming at the difficult issues of money. Um, Absolutely. And in some ways what people, using your expression, let go control, people have, bottom lines in their minds before they come into bargaining on the union side or top dollars, they won't go beyond uh, mm -hmm. X amount of money on the, the board administration side. And they in some ways need to let go of those and let the discipline of the process, they'll end up mm -hmm. well within, I think, those parameters, but in a much more constructive way. So again, uh, I think money in some ways is most conducive to this kind of process and most counterproductive if you don't use this process. I could not agree more. When you go through um, the process of interest-based bargaining, storytelling, data dump, which is, that to me, it, that's key. If, you, if, if any one person walks out of the data dump and goes, they haven't showed us everything, yep. Yep. process won't work. You stay in there till everyone gives you a thumbs up. And, and, and they're committed that this is the data in the room. And all they're giving you a thumbs up on is this is. This is it. They're These not the agreeing facts. on what they're going to get or who's going to go. They're agreeing that everything that was in that room, they agree with. And there's no more, and nobody's holding anything back. Um, 
But when you get that, um, you get that process in the room and you get those people to believe in that. And I have had to say numerous times to people that um, tend to be more controlling, let the process work. And when you get, then get the straw design, when you have you know, talked through shared interests, I would, told the story, shared interest, uh, charted the shared interest, and then you go, okay, we're going to break down in the committees. And in the committee, you have an administrator, a teacher, board member if they're on a team. You have teachers and administrators going off in their small groups with the straw design to walk back in, and then they share it with their group and say, okay, if we take this, this, and this, this could be a model we could adopt. And then when you do that with three or four subcommittees, you start to design the salary, benefit structure, working conditions, insurance. All those things are coming in the room. And it's not one person doing it. It is a collective effort of people coming in. Now, it's really been interesting in my experience over 16 years. There tends to be a group, the subgroup, that comes in with a straw design that's almost spot on. Mm -hmm. And it's teachers collaboratively working with administrators. Guard is down, relationships are building, and they're just putting out there what they really believe is not only a reasonable settlement, but a very fair, shared yeah. settlement. Um, so I, I couldn't agree more on the economic piece. Let the process work. Right. And then you're, you're sitting there, and I've, I've, I've witnessed this. People are, you know, hugs, handshakes. Okay, we got it. Yeah. And it was, you, you, the process brings you to that. No one's sitting in another room thinking of a proposal and trying to get the other team, right. get the other side. So I, I agree, the process sorts that out. I want to come up to one other sure. point. The big, one thing that just sets the stage, you know, CEC does the training, but when you walk into a bargaining session and the first thing is you have Lynn Adler up there saying, okay, okay we're gonna check in. Talk about humanizing a process. Everybody checks in, who you are, how you doing, any time constraints, anything just hanging on from the last time you want to ask, we'll put it up on the, Lynn puts it up on the question board. The facilitator puts it up on the question board. So there's no little hanging chads there annoying people going, well, I wish I'd asked this. Just, you know, clarification questions. And, and when you get people checking in who you are and the second one how you are, you, you are building relationships because people start to let their guard down. And in a good way, in a, in a meaningful way, because we're human beings. So it, it, I just absolutely am a champion for the cause of collaboration. And CEC, I believe, really can be an asset to districts. And to that point, asset on resource use. If anyone thinks traditional, positional is a resource saver, I think it, my experience, it is, is exhaustive of time, money, it's exhaustive of community um, support. It's exhaustive of morale in the district. When you can shift all that away and say you're going to be efficient with and value people's time, you're going to value their input, you're going to value their knowledge base, and put that energy and time into, okay, let the teachers do what they do best. Work with the kids yeah. and take away all the that noise and resource uh, waste, and IBB does that. Yeah, you know, what you say about uh, community support I think is critical. 
over the years, my experience with the fighting that, that parties tend to do internally, they always turn to the community to support them against the other guys. Yes. Okay? And what ultimately happens in the community is they say, you know, a, a pox on both their houses. I don't believe either of them. Right. Okay. I mean, they're not very adult, are they? These are supposed to be adults. What's going on? Right. And so I think when communities begin to experience the interspace process, they begin to say, my goodness, they're acting like adults. In fact, they're acting like professionals. Um, right. I remember after the first interspace process in Rockford a few years ago, the superintendent and union president put jointly out an editorial in the paper, and it just was so much in contrast to what had been before that it's a huge builder of community support. And, right. and you talk about the cost in terms of destroying community support, but also internal morale. Those are, um, they have an economic price tag to them. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. And are pretty critical dimensions to this process. I also love what you said about humanizing the process. Oftentimes in the interest-based process, there's an opportunity in, for extended sessions where people will break bread together, okay? Yes. And begin to really get to know each other and their stories as people, okay? Not just their story within the confines of their roles in the system. I just happened to see this play in, at the Goodman Theater, uh, theater or no, it's Timeline Theater, called Oslo. And it was about, in the uh, 1990s, uh, the uh, Norwegian intermediaries that brought the PLO and the Israelis together for the first time. And it was very <laughs> tense, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. But one of the things the facilitators pushed, the, uh, the Norwegian facilitators, was that, okay, have your conversations tough, and then break, and let's drink and eat together. Right. <laughs> and in the play, it's remarkable how people begin to develop relationships off of that, that humanizing of the whole process. So, um, well, anyway, I, th I think we've... Uh, I talked a lot about uh, the value of this, and I, I hope our excitement and enthusiasm for the process has come through to people because uh, we think it's uh, transformational. I, absolutely. I've experienced it transforming the relationship, the culture. And, and you see, I mean, flip on the news, you're going you're gonna to unfortunately see labor management challenges. Saw it, you know, this morning in the news before I came over here. Yep. But those out there, and I believe... Those out, our, our fellow educators, that really want to do what's right for kids, and I believe they do, and they want to elevate and respect the teaching profession again, which I think we need to champion, all of us, because I think, unfortunately, the teaching profession is un... Uh, they're getting beat up in the media where they shouldn't be. Right. And I think if this process will elevate the profession of teaching um, and really enhance collaboration and allow educators, classroom teachers, administrators to focus on teaching, learning. I mean, our kids need social-emotional supports as well as academic. I believe IBB is the way to go, and I believe it really allows districts to transform culture and just cultivate collaboration. And, and we need to see that as a society. I mean, you're right, when, when communities see labor management working together, and hearing about student successes, not bargaining failures, then we're doing the right thing. You know, I think you cap capture the, the, the way to summarize this is interest-based bargaining is social-emotional learning support for the adults.
thanks to Joe Anderson and Nick Wall for sharing their thoughts about interest-based bargaining and interest-based problem solving. To learn more about the Consortium for Educational Change and TURN, visit cecweb.org and turnweb.org.